Great. I really appreciated that worship this morning. Um, we're going to talk about some some difficult topics, and uh, in that context, it's nice to remember the joy that we have in Jesus uh, and to hold those things uh, together. That also that we live in a time of already, uh, but not yet. We have the presence of Christ and the encouragement of his spirit, but we also live in a a fallen world of suffering. When I was uh, planning this sermon um, and talking, uh, thinking a lot about injustice, um, my kids came to my mind. See, uh, kids have a funny sense of justice. It's not that they only care about themselves. Uh, At least with my kids, They get real mad when you tell them about injustices in the world. And if some big kid at the park is picking on their little brother, they'll swarm on him like the SWAT team. But when it comes to disputes and conflicts that involve them and what they want, then their sense of justice starts getting a little bit wobbly. Not that they just take matters into their own hands, because after, say, five or six years old, they don't just want their own way. They also want to feel justified. So they make up arguments for why they are right. So their argument about why they deserve the next turn playing Mario Kart becomes a passionate speech about right, wrong, and justice in the world. If we are honest, this is not so much different than us adults much of the time. We want what we want, and we want to be right to want it, even when it opposes God's will. Let's stand to read the scripture. It's Jeremiah 7, 1 through 8. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house, and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Lord, I just pray that you will be uh, with us this morning. I pray that you will give me uh, words to say. Uh, Through your spirit, Lord, I know that I can't communicate what you want to communicate, but Lord, I know that you can do it through me, Lord. I know we cannot listen to your word and take it in without the work of your spirit working in us, Lord. So I pray that your heart, uh, your word will be changing uh, my heart as I preach and that it will be effective to change all of our hearts, Lord. So what we have here is God's complaint for the people of Judah. We're going to talk about God's word of judgment to coming to his people who are in rebellion against him, all while claiming his name. God told Jeremiah to stand at the gates of the temple to prophesy words of judgment. He wanted his followers to hear this is people who are coming to the temple to worship are going to hear this word, not to the... the uh, heathens that are around the pagans or the surrounding nations, but the followers of God. This is condemnation, and it's also mercy. It's condemnation because God has a hard truth for them, 
but it's mercy because they're being given an opportunity to repent. The people of Judah desire to feel justified, but they are unjust. They say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. So we are uh, Calvinists, so we know that we are justified. Justification comes from the completed work of Jesus Christ. We are not working off our debt of sin or working toward a state of future righteousness. Our debt has been paid and we are made righteous. But we can't just affirm this truth and think we are good. Following God is not an exercise in agreeing with theological truths in word only. James 1, to 24 says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. You see how this connects to what Jeremiah is saying? Don't fool yourself. The right words are important, but if you think the words save by themselves, you're in trouble. So what are God's words that uh, his people's actions go against uh, here? Why is he sending Jeremiah to stand at the gates and prophesy? So these are the, uh, the three things um, that they're doing. They're oppressing the foreigner, the widow, and the orphan. They're shedding innocent blood. And they're worshiping other gods to their harm. So we're going to break down what these things mean. Oppressing uh, the foreigner, the widow, and the orphan, shedding innocent blood, and worshiping other gods to their harm. First, I'm going to talk about oppressing the foreigner. Who is the foreigner? The foreigner is someone who can be treated in an unjust and exploitative way because they are a minority. They do not have the same legal and political protections or recourse that the majority culture has. It is important to understand that the fact that they do not have recourse is completely typical and also wrong. If you take a look at history, you're going to have a hard time finding a place or a time where those in the majority don't try to oppress and exploit minorities living among them. This is the fallen nature of humanity. But it is not God's way. In Leviticus 19, God had already told the Israelites, when a foreigner resides among you, In your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So this was not news to the Jews, but they chose to disobey and take advantage of those without legal protection. We do this as well in America. You could take a look at an example from the life of a black man named Malcolm Little. His father was murdered, and the life insurance company cheated his family out of the insurance payout. Being black and poor, there was nothing his mother could do. Poverty and indignity eventually broke his mother, and she ended up institutionalized, and he and his siblings ended up in uh, foster care. Malcolm Little would grow up to be Malcolm X. Oppressed, he grew to hate his oppressor, the white man in America. This is also an example, actually, of the next complaint that God gives Jeremiah, or the second part of this complaint. 
which is the Jeremiah talks about oppressing the widow and the orphan, those who do not have the family protection and the personal network of support that is normal for that culture. Every culture has a way that it organizes itself, so people have a place and know who to go to when they get into trouble. Now, Israel was a patriarchal society, and that doesn't mean that their soccer team got paid a lot less than the men's team. I mean, their women's soccer team got paid a lot less than the men's team. It means that business was handled through the heads of the households, and the head of the household was the old man. I'm not going to pretend to understand all the ins and outs of how that worked, but I do know this. It left a widow or an orphan without a patriarch to stand up for them in a dangerous place. They could be taken advantage of, and they would have a hard time getting anyone to listen or to take up their cause. Jeremiah uh, finishes up this list of the, the actions that the Israelites are doing uh, against people in their land by talking about shedding innocent blood. Now, we all know what shedding innocent blood is. It's taking the life of someone uh, who's innocent. It's done nothing, hasn't attacked you. It's done nothing to deserve this. Um, but let's talk about a couple of examples from other parts of the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 22.34, it says, But you have eyes and heart only for your dishonest gain, for shedding innocent blood, and for practicing oppression and violence. What can we take from this? The leaders in Judah were using their position to kill and steal what little the poor had from them. There's another example here in Jeremiah 19, 4-5, in which the people of Judah were shedding innocent blood in a way that is particularly horrific to God. Let's read that together. Because the people have forsaken me and have profaned this place by making offerings in it to other gods, whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known, and because they have filled this place with the blood of innocence and have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it come into my mind. Nor did it come into my mind. Nor did it come into my mind. Sometimes my kids do things, things I would never have told them to do, things I would have not even thought to tell them not to do. And when I find out, I just, I, I just don't know what to say. Like uh, when I find my, found my daughter one night uh, after I'd put her to bed with deodorant spread all throughout her hair. Uh, or my son... Uh, poured chocolate milk down a slide at the park just to see what would happen. Of course, that is just the sort of crazy thing kids think up that we would not uh, imagine to do. But here in Jeremiah, we see a different kind of speechlessness. God is speechless because of the unimaginable evil that his people have manifested. The language shows us how far away from God's will or nature this bloodshed is. Not only didn't he ask for it, he didn't even think of it. Now, we should understand the people of Judah lived in largely an agricultural society. So whatever they had, they had to grow. It had to come out of the earth. If it was too cold or too hot or too wet or too dry, the crops wouldn't grow. And it's easy to imagine that in a circumstance like this, if the food was getting low, that desperation would seize the people's hearts. What will we do? Has God forgotten us? Will we watch each other starve? And then, perhaps, 
If the child is going to die anyway and God doesn't care about us, maybe we should just sacrifice to one of these other gods who has a more direct connection to the rain or the harvest. It got hard to trust in God's goodness and power, and so they put their children to death. And don't we do the same? People are desperate. People feel that they have no place, and they are hustling to get a place in this ruthless, cutthroat, get-rich-or-die-trying culture. And I'm not talking about Philadelphia culture or urban culture. I'm talking about American culture. And a baby comes along? What are you going to do? Sacrifice the American dream or sacrifice the child? And you're scared. And the doctor just assumes you'll make the choice to have an abortion. And there's a nice lady telling you you're making the right choice, that you need to be in a better place, and that when it is meant to happen, you will have gotten things together enough to have your real child. And men don't want to be tied down, chasing some image of themselves that is a lie. Ego is too big to see the gift that they've been given. Too scared to admit that they're scared. And who is there for them, telling them that they are made in the image of God, and so is their child, and that they're precious, and that that life is sacred, and valuable, and invaluable? And so we sacrifice our children, though it is in a sanitized, cold abortion clinic, and not the Temple of Baal, still we sacrifice them. 62.5 million since 1973. That's roughly one-fifth of the population of the United States. So, think about it this way. If you're in a group of four people, there's a fifth person, a sort of ghost, who should have been there, but is not. We should lament this. So, we have this list of complaints, oppression of the foreigner, the widow, the orphan, and the taking of innocent blood of the poor and of children. This is finished and summarized in this. You follow other gods to your harm. Why do people steal, kill innocents, and oppress the vulnerable? Because they are following other gods than the one true God. We call this idolatry. See, people worship. They can't escape it. We were made to worship. We were made to worship God. But we'll use pretty much anything as a substitute. And when we worship anything besides God, even if we don't know we're doing it, we are practicing idolatry. We can make an idol out of anything. Good things or bad things, it doesn't matter. In fact, sometimes the most dangerous idols for a Christian are the ones that are the best things. Worshiping a good thing that is not God is still idolatry. And we can fool ourselves into thinking it is God because it is good. And we say, this is the temple of the Lord while sacrificing justice for the sake of our good idol. So it's no good to try and fix the injustices without fixing the idolatry. In Luke 6.43, Jesus says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad fruit, bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. It's the heart that is the problem, 
Repentance from idolatry is key. But if we're going to repent from idolatry, we need to find our idols. So what does idolatry look like? And this is my second point, if I had an outline. Um, what does it look like? Distrust, disobedience, and destruction. Judah went after other gods to their own harm. They stopped trusting in God. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Tim put it this way. Sin is the failure to believe that God loves you. I think that's a paraphrase, but forgive me, Tim. Um, you don't trust God, so you try to make things work according to your own understanding. This leads to disobedience. This is why, if you have a plan and you're not into submission to God... There's no getting around conflict with God's plan. If that weren't true, then you would be God. But you're not God, and I'm not God. You have to just trust me on this one. <laughs> Judah disobeyed God. They killed the innocent poor and their innocent children. They oppressed minorities and widows and orphans. They took things into their own hands, and they got those hands bloody. What does the prophet Jeremiah tell, this is, tell us this is leading to? To destruction. In God's mercy, that destruction is through war and trial and suffering on this earth, so there might be a chance for some to repent. But the destruction we should really fear is that of the soul. That the soul, which was made to commune with God in eternity, will instead be separated from God forever. Just to hammer the point about home about how hard idolatry can be to see. I still remember a sermon from 20 years ago. It's probably, no, it's over 20 years ago that John Steinrock preached in this church because it just, it just, uh, you know, I was, I was a teenager at that time and, and it, it really surprised me and shook me. He, he confessed in that sermon that he had made his children idols and that they and he had suffered for it. See, the devil's trick is that if you make an idol out of a good thing, praising it above God, its creator, you will destroy it and yourself. So, instead of sacrificing to our idols, we must sacrifice our idols. I want to begin this final point by reading a quote from a man who argued strongly against institutionalizing the practice of slavery in the U.S. Constitution. This man was George Mason, and this is what he said back in 1787 when they were arguing over the Constitution, back before this nation was even a nation. And this is the quote he said, Every master of slaves is born a petty tyrant. They bring judgment of heaven upon a country. As nations cannot be rewarded or punished in the next world, they must be in this. By an inevitable chain of causes and effects, providence punishes national sins by national calamities. Now, my man George understood some things. He understood that if you're going to go around violating God's law, you're going to get smacked down. There are consequences and repercussions that a nation which is unjust will come under the wrath of God, and will experience his judgment. But you want to know the crazy thing about George? George owned slaves. When I first learned this, I was shocked. I couldn't understand it. How could someone who 
so clearly saw and understood who clearly saw and understood what was evil and understood the judgment of God still do the self-same evil. And this was a man who had the clarity and character to speak out against the evil of slavery when it was extremely unpopular to do so. He must have in some way been deceived. He, like the people of Judah, must have trusted in deceptive words. I've thought about this, and I can't give you an exact answer. Only God can look into people's hearts. But what I can do is share with you a little peek into my own heart. I've thought a lot about new life over the last year and a half, and I have wondered to myself why we haven't had a voice when it comes to the oppression that our black brothers and sisters go through in this country and this city. I noted to myself when Philando Castile was shot that we did not mention it in the prayer or from the pulpit. I noted it intellectually in my mind, but I was not moved to say anything about it. In my heart, I felt that it was a tragic injustice, and the fact that his girlfriend's daughter was in the car moved me deeply. Why didn't I say anything to the session about it? I'm still struggling through this, but I think the reason was that I was calloused. The spot on my heart that should have been affected was hardened by rationalizations. I thought, there are bigger things we have to do. There are bigger issues of justice in this country. It's just one man. There's things we have to maintain a witness for. It doesn't really make a difference anyway. I'm not really sure what happened. And what I want to do for you in front of you today is repent of that attitude. The attitude that I need to decide what are the most important issues of justice to God and make sure we keep focus on them. This is a foolish and prideful attitude. Let us take another look at the word Jeremiah brings from the Lord. He says, If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place. He doesn't say, but shedding innocent blood is the worst, so please stop that first, and then proceed to work on the others. And why not? A strong case can be made that shedding innocent blood is the worst. So why not be reasonable and start with the worst thing and then work your way down the list towards resolving the others? Jeremiah speaks about different injustices together in the same breath, and together with idolatry, because they are all part and parcel with each other. They can't be separated they are a manifestation of hearts that want their own way, their own plan, and their own comfort, and reject God's way, God's plan, and God's discomfort. I believe that we have made our fights against the injustices we think are the worst idols. Some of us feel that abortion is the most significant injustice facing our nation, while others feel that injustice towards minorities is the most significant. We both get used by political parties for their ends, but usually get very little in return. We both feel justified by the truth we see that we think the other doesn't see, the other side doesn't see. And we both feel vindicated by seeing the mistakes and errors we feel the other side falls prey to. But do not think that by saying, I am pro-life, I am pro-life, I am pro-life, 
or I am anti-racist, I am anti-racist, I am anti-racist, you will be justified. A partial gospel is no gospel, and God does not look kindly on his word being edited. Now I know, and I hope you know too, that different people have different callings, and that is fine. God asks different things of different people, and we should not look down on each other or be proud based on our callings. But I don't think that's a sufficient answer, because, you know, my, my, uh, someone may be called to be a carpenter and someone else may be called to be a plumber, but you don't see carpenters and plumbers fighting tooth and nail on social media about whether, you know, carpentry is the one true calling or plumbing is the one true calling. So, I think there's another issue here that's going on, and I think this reveals it. Your heart should be able to be broken by all injustices. If you look away from abortion and the innocent blood that is shed, or you look away from oppression and the killing of innocent people of color, and you are able to make excuses in your heart that protect you from caring, and your heart doesn't break, you may have an idolatry problem. There may be a callus that you need to ask God to tear away. Now, we can't do this on our own. We weren't made to do it on our own. We need each other. We do have blind spots. We do get manipulated. We do believe narratives that make us feel comfortable, but are a bunch of nonsense. We are often blind to our own idolatry, and we need a brother or a sister in love, to point it out to us. The eye needs the hand to remove the speck, and the hand needs the eye to remove the splinter. If we don't love each other, submit to each other, and listen to each other, well then, we are going to keep sniping at each other. And our sacrifices and suffering will make no difference, because our witness will be compromised by our idolatry. When you see the angry posts and comments flying between Christians full of pride on social media, you can't be shocked we have a hard time getting the world to listen. I want to finish up by telling you this. There's a big part of me that didn't want to preach this sermon. I felt like it was futile. How can I make a difference? It made me face some uncomfortable things in my own heart. I felt called to say some things that I knew were going to make others uncomfortable, unhappy, and probably mad at me. I know Jeremiah felt some of these ways too, but God called him to speak. I believe that it is crucial that we have a strong prophetic voice that includes the full weight of God's justice. If we want to see the oppression of minorities in this culture end, if we want to see justice for everyone black, brown, white. If we want to see an end to the slaughter of innocence, we have to do it through unity. I've spent a long time looking at, I mean, I'm only 38 years old, but it feels like a long time, looking at this culture and seeing year after year hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of innocents killed. And I'm tired of hoping that we're going to elect the right politicians who are going to appoint the right judges that are going to make the right decisions 
that is going to have some top-down end to that practice. I don't believe it's going to happen. I think that we need repentance in this nation. But we're not going to get that repentance in this nation if we don't aren't able to repent and have unity and love in the church. So that's what I believe God is working on in us here at New Life Church. I feel this is, this is my vision for this church, is that, you know, we have a lot of issues going on here. We've got struggles and uh, fights and discomfort that, you know, you can go to a lot of churches and get away from. So why should you stay here? I mean, our tech team, you know, is working really hard, but we got a computer from, when was that old computer from? It's like as old as my daughter. Um, so, you know, sometimes things don't work the way that you would hope that they work. So why should we stay here at New Life? Because we're working on this unity here. We're working on this unity here. And it's going to be a unity in truth, not a papered over unity. And that involves discomfort. It involves humility. It involves pain. It involves stuff getting real. But I believe that's what God is working here at New Life. I think that's his calling for us. And that is what I'm praying for. I don't know what's supposed to happen now. But... <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll pray you guys come on up. Lord, thank you for uh, being with us this morning. Um, I just pray you'll bless the rest of this day. You will bless our hearts, Lord, that you will enable us to be encouraged even as we look at discouraging things, Lord. And uh, I pray that you will bring us together in, in spirit and in truth and in love um, to fight the fights that you want us to fight, Lord, to fight for the justice that you love. We pray these things in your name. Amen.